second most critical issues in the world today are linked with the way we govern natural resources. From Russia's war funded by oil revenues to the existential threat of climate emergency, many also relate to the commodities in the earth beneath us. For example, we want to transition to sustainable energy. So we reduce carbon emissions and fight the climate change that can lead to so many natural resources in the world. But to do that, for those renewable energies to scale, the extraction of certain minerals that are needed for them wouldn't have to scale as well. So the lithium, the cobalt that goes into the batteries of electric cars, just to name some. And that also comes at the expense of an enormous challenge to avoid that the extraction of those minerals have negative impacts on countries and communities and instead benefit them. So it seems like governing natural resources in a way that avoids funding the kleptocrats of the world or in a form that ensure communities and countries benefit from them is key. And today, many people and organizations work around ensuring this happens. But how all these organizations and people do we get here? In what we call the natural resource governance field. And where should we go in the, given this new nature of the challenge uh, that are emerging? Are the same policy recommendations of the past decades are still relevant? Do we need to rethink our assumptions and how? Do we need other models, pathways, bolder ideas about what resource governance is about? I am Ana Carolina Gonzalez, Senior Director for Programs at the Natural Resource Governance Institute. And these are the issues we at NRGI grapple with every day. And also in this podcast series, the resource remix. It is my pleasure to welcome to this podcast, NRGI's former president and CEO, Daniel Kaufman. Danny is a pioneer in the field of governance at the World Bank, now affiliated with the University of Philippines, the Brookings Institute, and Resourceful Development. Welcome, Danny. Thank you very much, Ana Carolina. It's an enormous pleasure and honor to be with you and with the whole NRGI family again, and in such an important topic, which you have outlined. Danny, I started by speaking about some of the critical current events related to resource governance. You have been writing and presenting about this seismic shift for the past few years. But for those of us with shorter memories, can you quickly get up to speed on what is meant by resource governance and where the field of resource governance came from? Thanks. I, I'm glad. Uh, by your inquiry into this historical perspective, not only because without history, we misunderstand the present and we will keep repeating past mistakes in the future, but also because it puts context into context the sense that the field of natural resource governance is at the crossroads right now. You see, contrary to popular beliefs, concerns about natural resource governance which refers to the good stewardship on the natural resource riches of a country for the benefit of all, for the growth, development, benefit of all, did not just start in the UK and with the likes of Tony Blair and others two decades ago. In fact, in this early 1700s, the British publication The Spectator wrote in an article, it is generally observed that in countries of the greatest plenty, 
there is the poorest living. So this is a long-standing concern. The increasing traction to the idea that resources might be more of an economic curse and a blessing began to emerge in the 1950s and 60s with the analysis of challenges in developing countries. In the early 90s, there were writings already about how countries rich in resources were unable to use that wealth to boost their economies and how they lowered economic growth. Um, and especially compared with non-resource-rich countries. And then the likes of Jeff Sachs, other academics, found a very strong correlation between natural resource abundance and poor perform economic performance. In the 60s, back to the 60s, thanks to the concerns in the Netherlands that they had just found plenty of natural gas and were earning fresh foreign exchange, a particular economic policy dimension of the resource course garnered attention, namely exchange rate overvaluation, which discouraged non-resource exports, the so-called Dutch disease. We can call this, complementing the early concern on resources negatively affecting economic growth, resource course 1.0. And we are talking um, more than half a century ago, the very, economic manifestations of the resource course. Only after the turn of the century, that very economic focus begins to take also a governance dimension very seriously beyond traditional economics. Call it resource course 2.0. And we enter at that point this, what I would call the soft governance era, which focused very much on transparency in extractive, and particularly at the beginning, transparency on, of payments of industry to governments, to full disclosure to the extent possible, which still has not happened until today. Uh, NGOs like Global Witness were pioneers in this, later leads to the creation of Publish What You Pay. In this space, they influence the UK and eventually leads to the inception of the Extractive Industry Transparency Initiative, or EITI, where we both work. And all this, uh, this is also predecessor uh, to the support given by, uh, by NRGI at the time, which was called Revenue Watch Institute before we, we had the mergers. And uh, obviously, Revenue Watch Institute, the predecessor of NRGI, plays an important role in this process as well. Then about a decade ago, the increasing realization that transparency may be absolutely necessary, but it's far from sufficient, results in increasing focus on participation and accountability, or what we call sometimes the TAP troika, transparency, accountability, and participation. Among others, the notion of protection of civic space becomes important, and we work hard for those protections to become institutionalized in initiatives like in the ITI and elsewhere. And that begins to happen. And the evidence did show that improved transparency, in, in, improved participation accountability could help mitigate some forms of corruption. And that's all part of this governance resource course 2.0 package. But again, more recently, this it becomes clear that this focus was also insufficient, leading to the case we have been making for broadening the governance scope in natural resource governance, sometimes called TAP plus. So going beyond the TAP troika into very tough rule of law, 
reform issues, regulatory reform issues, public sector reforms, state-owned enterprise reform, particularly with national oil, oil companies, uh, and very timidly, a very start with the so-called energy transition, okay? So in brief, that's where we are now, but with two pending key dimensions, which we can discuss later, of the resource course that we have not gotten the focus in the natural resource governance field that it deserves, even if there are some initiatives here and there, but the field as a whole. As a whole. One which we can call the resource course 3.0 and label it as the tough governance in a dimension, which is related, let's call it for, for what it should be called, tyranny, conflict, and climate crisis. And the other, RC 4.0 related, which is a corporate resource course. It's the corporate dimension of the resource course, the captors by industry, like oligarchs, and their collusion with the kleptocrats. And it is very interesting, Danny, that you um, take us back to uh, very uh, early days in history um, on this discussion, because um, of course, when you discuss about natural resource governance, one might think that it all started at least with some emblematic initiatives or conversations. I remember in particular that report that Global Witness published in 1999, if you remember denouncing corruption um, in Angola in the oil sector and demanding companies um, to um, actually disclose the payments that were uh, being made to, to government as a certified incentive to avoid corruption, right? And then the emergency of, of, of uh, public what you pay, EITI, where energy, I actually took a very active part. But yes, a lot of things have uh, had happened. And although people is still, of course, interested in having information about these payments, what you see in the case of, let's say, popular consultations in, in mining regions in Colombia, or what you uh, heard from local communities in South Africa, Africa that are asking for them to be included in just transition plans is that people is no longer looking only for information or even as you mentioned you know for transparency accountability and participation is people is not longer looking even to hold governments and companies to account they want to decide they want to influence decision making they want a share of power um, so while we have made important gains in transparency around the extraction of oil, gas, and minerals, we clearly aren't where we need to be, right? Um, and you have been promoting major change for some time already, but do you think organizations of the field are asking these fundamental questions? I know that you took the lead in designing and implementing a survey in which actually NGI and 100 other participants took part precisely in relation to these. So, um, and you and your and a colleague are, are, are now um, having a report on it. So what have you found? When we ask hundreds of respondents for what are the most important priorities for reform, generally, at first, some of these very tough governance dimensions that we just mentioned, including the protection of democracy, including addressing state capture, and high-level corruption, and including the climate emergency, they all came out as a very high priority. That's not very surprising. But the same respondents are rather pessimistic 
about the likelihood of progress in those areas. There's a huge gap between, <clears throat> between stated priority and likelihood in their views. Um, but that's not the case when we ask them questions about the traditional ongoing areas of work in the field, so, such as continuing the work on disclosures and transparency that I started 20 years ago. They don't give it the top, the absolute top priority, a bit lower, but the likelihood of being successful uh, is fine. So consistent with that, uh, there are lots of people in the field that, that are comfortable continuing with that trajectory because at least the probability of, of failure, since it's much, it's much lower hanging fruit, um, is, is lower. Then when we ask these respondents about what kind of transitions were needed in the various natural resources, those in the natural resource governance field were more gradualist and conservative regarding moving away from fossil fuels than those outside of the field, which is telling in, in itself. Surprisingly, regarding this set of findings, civil society respondents, because we ask all stakeholders, okay, industry, government, international financial institutions, and civil society were involved. But civil society respondents, on average, were basically as risk averse as the respondents from the other stakeholders, governance and IFIs. I mean, there's some small differences, but uh, you don't find a huge uh, difference there. There were some exceptions, of course. There are rays of hope. And uh, in terms of some respondents wanted and believing that something bolder is possible and giving also bolder type of recommendations as to what to do uh, ahead. On, on average, this is not universal, it's not a one-to-one -one correlation, but on average, that's associated with younger and female respondents, interesting enough. So that's a message uh, 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 right there. They were not the norm though. The norm was risk aversion and comfort. So over, overall, we do find some risk aversion, a measure of conformism, one which is not really consistent with the seismic global shifts that are taking place that we have been discuss discussing. So the case in the report for much more audacity associated with concrete and bolder change is being made. You mentioned uh, that the uh, respondents in the server highlighted, like uh, it is, as you said, not very surprising that uh, some of the main changes that are highlighted there are the effects of the COVID pandemic in the economy and this uh, unsettling that comes with not knowing what is going to happen um, with, um, with economy in, in producing countries. And also, of course, the climate crisis and the challenges that come with the energy transition, for example, uh, for oil, gas, and minerals producing country, because that's also consist consistent with what we have been observing in energy eye. And yeah, you know, the rise in authoritarian regimes and the growing restrictions of civic space. Um, but maybe a couple of uh, additional changes that I would think um, are important to take into consideration that maybe are related to what you mentioned about the different role you, um, young people and women can play is that there is an important change in and I'm, I'm observing as well in terms of um, how the field can require 
uh, multidisciplinary perspectives. And uh, so the traditional organizations working mostly around resource governance, we need to add other movements to the conversation, right? Uh, we need to build bridges with other movements, with the climate movement, with the human rights organization, with uh, tax organizations and other, because the challenges that we are facing today are so systemic that require us to build coalitions out of the um, out of the traditional actors in what we call the natural resource governance fields. Um, and even beyond them, I would say that something that the actors in the field might need to, to, to do as well is we need to acknowledge um, that with the social protests that of the last years, an important number of new actors of social movements have emerged also in producing countries, even in the context of these re deep restrictions to civic space. So even with people, you know, knowing that it's difficult to participate, but wanting to participate more. So women organization, youth organization, indigenous and peasants organization, or more grassroots movements and networks, they operate very different from NGOs, but they are key actors when we think about how to make change happen. So I think that's one thing I would like to stress. There is a need to build bridges also with these social movements. And on the other hand, another change that I think um, has happened and requires the field to kind of be bothered um, is that when we think about the actors that we need to target to push for change, of course, the state, the public sector remain key and central. And we know that we need bolder strategies to target private sector, as you mentioned, like the corporate uh, sector responsibility on resource governance and international institutions for change. Um, that's not very new either. But sometimes we might have, have overlooked the role of media narrative, not just to disseminate information. It is not just about influencing decision makers, but to influence public narrative, the way people see natural resources playing in their countries, in their territories, the power of moving the needle in the public opinion to then create a stronger and maybe longer term incentive for decision makers to act. Um, for example, how to influence the narrative of the global energy transition that is mainly driven by the global north to include the voices of producing countries to push for more concrete commitments in terms of climate finance. So we ensure the energy transition is actually possible in those countries as well. Um, but for that, you need to shape narratives at a wider level and strategic communications and alliance are key for that. But so based on what you've mentioned and what I have added, it looks like we might need some more paradigmatic change here. How we could make this possible? especially given what you've mentioned in terms of some risk aversion between organizations in the field um, um, and between other actors in the field. What are the opportunities that you see, um, but also the barriers that we might need to overcome? We have, been, we have been recently discussing in NGI about encouraging such a discussion, but what do you think are the elements we should consider? need to consider a bolder approach. Whether that will signify a paradigmatic change or not, that's for another podcast. So let me um, give a few just ideas, suggestions that, that come up that um, uh, 
I would ask, why aren't we making more progress and, and, and now? You mentioned multidisciplinary approaches. Well, this has been taking place for a long time and, and now more is needed. Nobody will disagree with that. But the bolder version of that in the current situation is to say we need the most extreme form of partnership, both in terms of not only discipline, but in terms of also the focus on, on, on good research and analysis and activism. But the most extreme form of partnership is a merger. We, we did one and almost uh, basically almost 10 years ago now from Revenue Watch to Revenue Watch plus, plus the Natural Resources Charter became NRGI, but they're extremely rare. The incentives in the field among NGOs, uh, media, Yes, uh, more uh, user-friendly storytelling and all that, that's very nice. And we have been discussing that for a very, very long time. But right now, as we see in the world and in the worst governed places regarding hydrocarbons and so on, we need to protect and to support the, the toughest type of investigative journalism. Right? And to get these stories out in places where everything is being banned, everything is being secret, and journalists are being put in jail. But in addition, why not consider a major scaling up in addressing the huge remaining misgovernance within fossil fuels themselves, due to the actions and the capture by big oil, by the kleptocrats, by the rulers of oil-rich countries. That's really tough. And how do we do it? It's a, a different discussion. There are some stuff in energy and other places that are working on that, but these are niche issues. These are not being integrated into the core of what the field should be doing. Why also don't we fully expose without mincing words? We have to use a different language. The massing greenwashing in the whole ESG industry by the corporate with which we can discuss at very much less. Then take the national oil companies. Why continue to fiddle at the margin regarding taking a little measure here or there on additional disclosure and a few changes in corporate governance when some of them are totally captured politically uh, and and rather, we it's high time, it's been high time for years to consider a very different model in those settings, even if that's very politically difficult, instead of trying the same reforms at the margin in places, in organizations, institutions that may be unreformable. Maybe also that I would add, Danny, is in terms of having the conversation, I totally agree with you. This is about having a conversation and a podcast, but it cannot be just that, right? Um, so it's about who participates in the conversation and the form it takes. And, as, and, and again, who participates in the conversation? We need new voices. We need um, additional voices to the ones that have traditionally been associated with debates about natural resource governance, including people in other fields, social movements, universities in the global south, global south think tanks, and journalists as, as actors. They are not just targets for us, as you say, you know, to disseminate information, et cetera. They are um, 
very important actors um, in the field um, as well. But in relation to the how, how do we get there? How do we promote um, this um, change that the field is needing? Um, it is, yeah, how to take these conversations that are happening maybe in podcasts or in uh, many interesting meetings here and there to specific contexts. What if we have this conversation in a specific territories, in a specific countries? And if we look even for experience in which those changes are already at play in the way organizations, communities, or other actors are pushing for resource governance in this new era, a sort of bottom-up approach to learning, to understanding what does resource governance uh, mean uh, today. Um, and what if we learn also from other movements? We are not the, the, the first movement to uh, face uh, the need for, for a change, like human rights movement also have um, um, faced many change um, in, in the last decades. Um, and what if we pilot uh, as we learn uh, new ways of, of understanding these natural resource governance um, and use innovative ways again to communicate and provide visibility to the process and to specific efforts that maybe are, um, you know, small or we don't know them yet. What if we provide some visibility to to those? So it's just about it's less about big words and more about interesting, even if so, small actions. In terms of very concretely speaking, and the whole issue of bringing in different voices and addressing this problem of spell capture. Let me mention just two, two very concrete examples and, and the field could engage more with. One is my own country, Chile, with a newly elected uh, youngest president in the world, Boric, and so on. They are basically grappling with that. But at the same time, a new constitution is being drafted. We don't know yet it's going to be approved by the whole population and so on, but it's being drafted in the most participatory manner ever of any constitution anywhere. So we're having that as we speak. Now, Chile is the number one producer of copper in the world and so on. So it we extremely fertile to collaborate with that case study and draw the lessons of, yes, the art of the possible in this context. I think I also remained positive about what, what can come. Um, yeah, it's not easy. Path dependency is always there. You know, this idea of continue doing what you know how to do, what you have been doing for so long. But I think that the time has come in which we need to be bolder and think about other layers because, um, you know, the, uh, the challenges are so huge that um, we definitely need to, um, to build bridges with other movements and, and see how, how to push uh, change forward. Um, but the problem is also that uh, the context might not be helping that much. Uh, so what do you think about is the impact of the war in Ukraine and how do you see these new um, trends in the uh, international commodities market, energy markets can actually maybe delay or maybe be an opportunity for this conversation and these uh, major change to, to materialize? At the end of the day, it's a, it's a question of mindset and um, preparedness to take risks. Because one way of looking at what's happening now 
is, is to say that there have been extremely adverse developments and we know where they are. You have mentioned them, we have written about, about that. So it's a, it's a time to protect former gains, hunker down and be, be uh, uh, very careful about um, going as going in, in directions of trying to address the enormity of these new new challenges because politically they may be intractable. The probability of success is much, much less, obviously, than protecting uh, early gains and continue to work on what we are accustomed to with. So that would be a safer risk averse way. The other is, is to say, um, maybe continuing to do the same may be safer and we will not have a huge failure, but the impact is going to be so small and we're going to become irrelevant given the new developments. So there's absolutely no choice but to consider a, a strategy with much more audacity and boldness. And then the question becomes what to address. Let's face it, and I, I mentioned and hinted to that earlier, we are in an era now, and uh, you mentioned the war context, the Putin, Putin's invasion into Ukraine. We are in an era which has become very clear that there are hydrocarbon-fueled wars and invasions of other countries. So this is so well beyond these soft notions of governance that we need more transparency than, than in the past. So uh, the notion yeah, that's a completely different dimension of the resource uh, course and so on. Because of that, we know that there are major, uh, not just the climate uh, crisis challenge that we all know, and it's been ongoing and it's becoming worse, but there are major energy security considerations. As a result, many other countries in, in Europe and others are not only considering, but are proving really fast major new investment plans, and also because the oil and gas prices have gone through the roof. So uh, NRGI and others could be monitoring this a huge uptick of proposals and actions in terms of more, not less, new investments in hydrocarbons, and particularly LNG and, and so on. And obviously there are enormous trade-offs with energy security and, and so on. There's a bit less of a discussion because politically it's so different, uh, difficult to say, no, this is absolutely disastrous for the climate, um, the climate crisis. Um, so at the end of the day, I mean, we have to put it very starkly, at the end of the day, we're going to face, countries are going to face either with stranded assets or with a climate catastrophe. So those are two choices, unless we do something really, really boldly. And just calling into action and showing with the numbers where, where that is happening and showing the diff also differences, what, what can be done next year versus the next five years is really important. And that's why I put in the, into the mix, we have to discuss issues like nuclear power. We also have to discuss demand destruction. I mean, uh, again, it's a political taboo in the United States, the carbon tax and so on. But basically, there, um, <clears throat> the obsession with oil consumption, consumption has to basically shift. And it's beginning to shift in some countries. In fact, some European countries have uh, 
have been decarbonized in relatively quickly. They are, and now, again, talking about examples, concrete examples. We are not talking enough about great examples in Africa. They are, in terms of what they are doing, the share of electrification with renewables in Kenya, thanks to major wind and, uh, and solar projects, the African Development Bank is in, involved. There are many, there are a number of other e examples. Instead, uh, we focus so much on how much they're going to lose in revenues if they don't produce as much in terms of uh, oil. Um, of course, we have to be mindful these countries are not the main producers of, of carbon emissions. So that's not where the, most of the problem, and they did not benefit from hydrocarbons like, uh, like the West did. So there is issue of climate justice. But because of that, my, my suggestion for a topic that should take much more prominence is major compensation mechanism, a, a Marshall Plan-like type of mechanism may be needed. Already, again, there is a concrete example what some European Union and Canada uh, countries did with $8 billion to South Africa so that they started phasing out of coal, for instance, happened uh, just a few, few, few months ago. So um, again, this is not a academic or things like that. But these are the type of very concrete areas to, to make a change. And we need to think, think big and say, how do we scale up this? What can, would be the, the proposal? If we're going to have audacity and try really new things, we're going to take risks and we're going to fail as well as succeed. So we don't want to fail on everything. But and that's a difference of mindset that needs to, to be changed. And that's why the, the, the fresh blood, the new voices, uh, uh, having very, very tough and uh, frank conversation with boards and with funders is very important at this stage. The world has, has changed dramatically. So one of the things that you mentioned about the impacts of the war in Ukraine and the need to monitor what is happening out there in terms of new investments and, and new plans to actually expand um, uh, gas and oil exploitation here and there uh, is something that we have been following uh, very closely, um, especially because this raised a lot of expectations in producing countries. And you have seen already a lot of... Um, you know, countries in Africa like Tanzania or Senegal, um, just mentioning the possibility of expanding their oil gas fields to be now uh, providing the European market with their uh, gas. And of course, there, there are a lot of things to uh, put uh, on the table to discuss this that we don't have time to discuss, but we have been monitoring these. And one of the things that we have recommended uh, in our reports and blogs is that Europe needs to be clear about these and needs to make bother commitments in terms of not only providing uh, its, its uh, continent with the energy that it deserves, so energy security being prioritized, but also ensure that energy transition in those countries is not delayed because of these, um, you know, new, new move. Um, and so... I think that what you mentioned about the need of climate finance to be much more deliberate and uh, meaningful and intentional about uh, really moving the needle on energy transition in those countries is, is very important. And the other thing I wanted to mention is it's also about the model, because if we want to just um, 
uh, expand uh, renewable uh, energies or uh, other type of um, you know exploitation of critical minerals to provide those renewable energies with in the same way that we have uh, developed in the last three or four or five or uh, decades, um, it is just not going to be possible. So we need to listen to other movements. We need to listen to the climate movement, but we need to listen to the communities that are proposing new development models as well, right? And to examine also our consumption patterns and, and see how these can be modified, how we can learn from, from others as well. Um, but you said, this listen. is to say- you said we need to listen. I would say we need to merge. That too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we start by listening and then we need yeah. to merge and, and to build bridges and to um, and to build coalitions, as I said. So yes. um, thank you, Donny. This has been a great conversation. Definitely not the last one uh, on this topic. Um, it is clear from what we have discussed, at least that our thoughts align in terms of the need for a bolder change. I would call it for maybe a new resource governance paradigm or different paradigms around natural resource governance emerging from uh, different contexts and different regions, etc. But definitely something that put politics in the center of it, uh, that build bridges across movements and across um, social movements and 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 um, sectors and um, perspectives and uh, a, a natural resource governance um, uh, framework at least that um, includes the tough reforms that are needed as you mentioned um, including of course uh, being more intentional about fab fighting kleptocracy and and ensuring that people have a, a place in the table in, in decision-making. So thanks for this. And um, I hope we'll have uh, the time to continue this conversation and others um, in other Resource Remix podcasts. And thank you very much.